everybody. Sorry for starting late. I was having some technical issues, but this looks to be working now. Thank you for joining me and hope your weekend is going well. So there's been this standoff over the past week between Germany and its NATO allies, where Germany has been under a lot of pressure to authorize the delivery of its leopard tanks or leopard tanks, as I think they're pronounced in Germany, to Ukraine. And uh, this pressure has come on two fronts. One, Ukraine and its allies, NATO allies, are asking Germany to directly send tanks to Ukraine, the leopard tanks. But also, they also want Germany to authorize other countries to send their stocks of leopard tanks to Ukraine because under the rules um, governing how German weaponry is used, Germany has to approve uh, before other countries ship off German weapons and German uh, uh, vehicles and tanks like leopard to other countries. So, and Germany's refused to provide both so far, at least. And Germany's position publicly is that before they send in tanks to Ukraine, they want the U.S. to send in tanks too. Um, the uh, U.S. has a tank called the M1 Abrams tank, which is said to be the most powerful tank in the world. And Germany said to the U.S. that we want you to send at least a symbolic amount of tanks to Ukraine to do that. And the U.S. oddly has refused. So even though the U.S. claims that Ukraine is fighting this existential war, that it could be wiped off the map, and if, if it loses, then that's a defeat for civilization, and Russia could move on to other countries. The U.S. has not signed on to sending its own tanks, uh, even though the, the, its tanks, the M1s, are the most powerful tanks in the world. Now, the official reason that the U.S. says it won't do this is because they say that its tanks don't meet Ukraine's battlefield needs, uh, that they're too cumbersome, they require jet fuel, that uh, they would require too much maintenance. So it would not make sense for Ukraine to receive them. Now, maybe that's true. Um, I'm not knowledgeable enough on military equipment to be able to judge. But I find it odd that even sending a symbolic number of tanks, which is what Germany is basically asking for, is not is not is still not accepted by the U.S. Because even if it's true that these M1s can't operate on a wide scale in Ukraine, why not at least you know a bow to Germany's demand and send a symbolic amount, which could then free up Germany to send tanks of its own? Because I think the German hesitancy here is that it doesn't want to take the lead on this because it doesn't want to draw Russia's response. Whereas if the U.S. is involved too, then Russia is not going to obviously hit back at the U.S. And uh, but at least the response is is more spread out. It's not just focused on Germany, one country. So why then won't the U.S. agree to this? Well, look, it's quite possible that maybe they just feel as if this tank is so incompatible with Ukraine's battlefield and Ukraine's capabilities that it wouldn't make sense. Another possibility is that this is part of the longstanding U.S. goal to basically push other people into the crossfire. That if the goal here is not to defend Ukraine, but to weaken Russia, then one way to weaken Russia and to ensure U.S. dominance is to make sure that there's no possibility of any kind of future German-Russia cooperation, because Germany is the economic heart of Europe. Uh, before the war, it had pretty good relationship with, with Russia. And as a longstanding U.S. goal has been to sever that relationship, make sure that it can't ever um, 
thrive. And that was a big driver behind why the U.S. was trying to kill the Nord Stream 2 long before Russia invaded Ukraine. It was a major goal of the U.S. government um, to undermine the Nord Stream 2 pipeline connecting Germany to Russia. And the Ukraine war achieved that goal because right around the invasion, the U.S. got Ukraine got Germany to cancel the Nord Stream 2. And then, you know, uh, most recently, the, the Nord Stream 2 was sabotaged. Somebody blew it up. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that whoever blew it up wanted to sabotage Russia-German relations for good, which leaves only a small number of suspects, including the U.S. And so I think this whole tank dispute could be just a part of that goal, which is that the U.S. wants to push Germany into the crossfire with Russia and make sure that there's no possibility of Germany and Russia getting along. And this is starting to frustrate some people inside the uh, Ukraine government. The Ukrainian government is very upset with everybody, with both Germany and the U.S. They just want tanks. Um, one German official told the Washington Post, they said, um, for us, the key objective is getting Western tanks. We are talking about human lives here. I don't think it's a good strategy to analyze the consumption of petrol. So that's a clear dig at the U.S., which is saying that the Abrams tank, its tank, they can't send it in because it takes up too much fuel. So Ukraine, I don't think, is buying the U.S. excuse. And they're frustrated. And another person who is frustrated is Michael McCall. He is the uh, new chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's a member of Congress from the Republican Party. And here he is speaking today about the tank issue. President Zelensky said he so desperately needs. Well, you know, I do. The Wall Street Journal had an editorial that said we're giving them just enough to uh, bleed uh, through months without a chance of victory. That's the problem here. They need the tanks and they need the tactical long range artillery known as attackums. So notice what uh, McCall said there. He's citing the Wall Street Journal. He says that we're giving Ukraine just enough to bleed, um, just enough to bleed, uh, but and to keep the war going, but not to have victory. I'm going to play that again because I think it's he's describing it exactly right. Be sent as President Zelensky said he so desperately needs. Well, you know I do. The Wall Street Journal had an editorial that said we're giving them just enough to. Uh, bleed uh, through months without a chance of victory. That's He's exactly right. We're giving them just enough to bleed through months without a chance of victory. Now, I don't think he realizes that what he's articulating is, in fact, the U.S. strategy. Give Ukraine just enough to bleed, keep the war going, but they know that anything more could provoke a direct Russia-NATO war, which they don't want. But they also want their goal is again to bleed Russia. So this way, if you keep the war going, you bleed everybody, including Ukraine. So he's actually accurately describing the U.S. strategy. And what he wants is to send more weapons, even if that risks a direct Russia-NATO confrontation, including tanks. That's the problem here. They need the tanks, and they need the tactical long-range artillery known as attackums. Uh, if, if we announced we were going to give Abram tanks, just one, that would unleash, that would give Germany the, what I hear is that Germany's waiting for us to take the lead. Then they would put uh, leopard tanks in and also release, remember, there are about 10 countries that have leopard tanks. 
but they need Germany to sign off on so releasing. just one Abrams tank you think would or even all the saying that we're going to put Abrams tanks in I think would be enough for Germany to unleash uh, the, the Pentagon says they're too cumbersome complicated expensive they only get three miles per gallon are they the right tanks to be there every military expert I've said including General Keene and others uh, these tanks remember you have a new general in in, in town now right uh, he took the butcher of Syria out. He's got the more offensive general. There's going to be a winter offensive by the Russians. They need these tanks on the on the eastern flank in the Donbass. They also need the attackums, the longer range artillery, to hit Crimea where the Iranian drones are. So this is an interesting window into our political spectrum right now. You have the White House position, as described my as described by McCall, which is basically we're only giving them enough to to bleed and keep the war going over months, but not enough for victory, right? That's the White House position. His position is to send in more uh, heavy weaponry to let to help uh, Ukraine hit Crimea and maybe even targets in Russia. And the reason the White House doesn't want to do that is because, again, that kind of tact would risk a wider escalation and possibly bring NATO and Russia into direct confrontation. So that's our spectrum. The people in the White House who want to keep the conflict in Ukraine just, but bleed all sides. And the people in the Republican Party and other and their allies, and I'm sure there are some Democrats too, who want to go further than that and basically risk World War III. Nowhere in this spectrum is there any talk of diplomacy. It's just a question of do we want to just bleed Russia or do we want to risk direct World War III with Russia? That's our spectrum, basically. And here's another person on the World War III spectrum, and that is Lindsey Graham, uh, who's speaking recently on a trip to Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy said no blank checks. That makes sense to me. We're not asking for a blank check. I'm not. I'm asking for military aid to accomplish the purpose of driving Russian invaders out of Ukraine. If Putin gets away with this, there goes Taiwan. If Putin's successful in Ukraine is not prosecuted under international law, everything we said since World War II becomes a joke. He will continue beyond Ukraine. Let me, let me put it. So that's Lindsey Graham, you know, supporter of every single U.S. war of aggression, uh, including the Iraq war, trying to invoke somehow uh, the period since World War II about international law, um, and somehow saying that if somehow, if Putin is stopped in Ukraine, then Taiwan is next, which again, no matter how you, what you think about that, um, I thought the official reason was to defend Ukraine. I didn't think it was to help uh, pursue U.S. goals in Taiwan, whatever those are. But that's an example of how the neoconservative worldview is dominant in Washington and unchallenged. And it's now leading to this odd situation where Germany, which has been a faithful ally so far in this project, although reluctant one, is for now holding its ground, although I suspect it will probably cave, as it usually does, and find some way to let its tanks go into Ukraine. But the fact that there's so much pressure now to send, in, to send in these tanks, it speaks to also the fact that this war is not going the way we've been told. We've been told for the past year that Russia is close to defeat, that Ukraine is making huge gains. And while, you know, you can point to a few victories for Ukraine, overall, they're still losing a huge amount of people. And Russia is now mobilizing hundreds of thousands of new forces. And it's about to get even worse. And what I think we're seeing now with this standoff over the tanks is some desperation, but no willingness at all 
in Washington to abandon the strategy, which is to use Ukraine to, as Lindsey Graham said, fight Russia to the last person. And he said this openly. He said, he said this back in August that, uh, well, I'll just play the clip for you. Four months into this thing, I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. Four so, months into this. So that's Lindsey Graham, and he says it openly. As long as we give Ukraine the weapons they need, they will fight to the last person. And right now, Germany is interfering with that agenda somewhat. Uh, because Graham, people like him, want to fight Russia the last person in Ukraine. And Germany apparently right now doesn't want to put itself in that category of being one of the, of being in the last people to fight that Lindsey Graham advocates. Um, notice that Lindsey Graham doesn't advocate using the U.S. to fight Russia to the last person. It's only Ukrainians and possibly even Germans now too. So that's the situation we're in. It's interesting to observe and it's interesting to see, I think, the narrative somewhat shifting it's very hard now to conceal the fact that this, this war is not going well for, for the proxy warriors. And their only answer is to try to sacrifice more people. No thought at all to trying diplomacy, which they sabotaged a long time ago. Okay, let's take some calls. Brian, you're up. Hey, Aaron. Hope you're well. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, I just wanted to comment that the Ukraine war is really in the sweet spot. Um, we've got a great proxy battle that we can flood with sophisticated weaponry without having to, you know, arm an Al-Qaeda or some such. And so great for American industry. Yeah. Uh, you're right. It is good for American industry. Um, yeah, and proxy's not even in uh, most Americans' vocabulary, so it totally yeah. zaps any potential of anti-war movement. Uh, and you've got great NFL games on, so this one's uh, a win-win for for those with uh, the Raytheon and the Lockheed stocks. Uh, all true, all true. Okay, uh, thanks for the call. Thank you, uh, Brady. Go ahead. Ben, go ahead. Um... Last caller couldn't be more wrong about proxy, at least, uh, the word proxy. I've actually started a whole political party slash proxy government movement called the People Proxy or the Proxy Party, whatever we want to call it. We don't know yet. We're getting it started. But one of the ideas in the platform beyond peyote is forcing the debate. So I appreciate you bringing this up today because I feel like it's a perfect opportunity for Germany to demand an open diplomatic a democratic debate before they offer anything to the table. There should be an open debate between NATO and Putin and Zelensky and anyone involved before anyone contributes anything. What do you think about forcing the debate? Uh, open debate would be a uh, great thing. Uh, it would be, it would lead to a much healthier society. So thank you, Brady, for that. Okay. Nestor. Hey, can you skip me right now? Hold on, I'm getting uh, laundry out of the car and it's raining. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we can hear you fine. So yeah, your yeah, laundry but... is not interfering with the sound. No, so no, I'm, uh, I was outside getting the laundry from the car. From the wow, car. okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm inside again. So, uh, okay, uh, we're going to go. 
Uh, yeah, so, so like you said, Lindsay doesn't uh, want to advocate for U.S. to go into uh, Ukraine themselves because, I mean, they, they couldn't even beat the Taliban. You know, what hope would they have against Pesnuts, you know? <laughs> it, would, it would just look terrible for them to lose a lot of soldiers. Uh, they wouldn't just be losing equipment. They would be losing U.S. soldiers, and that would just completely tank the whole U.S. image in the world, you know? So that's one big reason why they don't want to face Russia uh, themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree with that. Yep, that's all I wanted to say for now. Okay. Thanks, Nancy, for the call. Okay. Next caller. Um, hi, can you hear me? Hi, yeah. how are you? Um, so, uh, I'm good, thanks. Good. Oh, good. Um, I missed the first couple of minutes of this, so I don't know if you were talking at all about um, like how there's like a couple other countries, I think, in Europe that also have German-made tanks. Uh-huh. Did you talk about that at all? Well, I did, yeah. I I, I mentioned it that, you know, that... that um, so, but they still need Germany's approval. Although yeah, some okay. people, I think Poland has suggested that even if Germany doesn't give the approval, they'll send them in anyway. Yeah, just because, like, sorry, because I only caught like the last couple of minutes of what you were saying in the beginning. But just like that whole aspect of it makes me think that, like, it has to do at least in part with, um, like, German tank manufacturers not wanting to be embarrassed by like the underperformance of their tanks. But if you talked about that, then you don't need to talk about it again. Well, you know, I didn't uh, speak about the underperformance of tanks. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, okay. I mean, what I did talk about is that basically the U S says that M one Abrams is too cumbersome for the Ukrainian bat- battlefield. Right, yeah. and, and that might be true. You know, uh, it, it's, it's possible. I mean, it, there's, they need a lot of maintenance. They need a lot of supply lines. I mean, that raises the question: Then why does this tank exist if it's so? If you can't right. deploy it to battle against, you know, the like the top U.S. enemy? Well, I mean, that doesn't speak very highly of, of this tank. But anyway, that's um. Yeah. yeah, I was just I was thinking like since Germany was like, we'll only send our tanks if you send your tank, and I yeah. think that like it's not just like the U.S. tanks, but also the German tanks, like would be so heavy that like they also wouldn't perform well but it seems like i've just seen some people commenting that it's like basically germany has like they've seen their leopards be like defeated on the battlefield before and they don't want to like have them keep getting like a bad reputation but if like both countries have to send their tanks and both of them get destroyed then it won't be like oh just germany's tanks suck right okay yeah that's interesting that's interesting yeah, yeah, yeah it's just something that's been floating around but like i don't personally know that much about how tanks work on the battlefield me um, either yeah. So, um, I had like one super off topic question, which sure. is, um, would do you think that you and your dad would ever be open to having him come on Colin as a guest? You know, we did that once. Oh, really? Oh my god. We did that it. once. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we did that once. Uh, we did that probably about a year ago. Okay. Um, um, like my mom has been reading his book and just like thinking about it a lot, and I feel like if like he wanted to come on and you wanted to have him on, it would be super cool to like give people opportunity to talk to him about it. But, yeah, no, um, sure. Yeah, no, we did it once. It's, uh, it was great. Uh, he, uh, he's pretty busy these days though. And I, I try not to, uh, you know, and, and especially, um, I've been trying to sort of keep 
our work separate because what I like about his work is that it transcends politics yeah, and it reaches, really it reaches, you know, it reaches people who share all kinds of different political views. And I, and I really appreciate that about what he does. And so I don't like to, you know, whereas, whereas mine doesn't. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I so, totally respect yeah. that. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. But, okay. but I, but, but one day, sure. Um, if, if time allows, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely do that again. If, okay. if he's up for it. Okay, yeah. I think that's all I have. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. CR. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? How's it going? It's going well. Tanks, man. Can you believe it's 2023 and we're still fucking about talking about whether or not tanks are obsolete? This is such a joke. Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is. It's completely fucking obsolete. If one dude with a little shoulder mounted rocket can take out, you know what I mean? Anyways, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's getting really stupid. But my, what I, what I was kind of curious about your, your thoughts on, um, so most of these, this of these kind of systems, right? You, uh, um, like they talk about the Abrams as being very labor and, <clears throat> and maintenance intensive. So we would actually more than likely have to have some of our troops over there, right? servicing that equipment, much like how our troops are over in Saudi Arabia, servicing the jets <laughs> that that, uh, that they bought, that they used to bomb the Yemenis, right? So it, it, it puts us more in the quote-unquote war, so to speak, right? And I would imagine that Germany probably has something similar. I don't know very much about their, their tanks or their technology, but I, wouldn't they also have to commit more actual personnel, not just the equipment itself? But, you know, people that are know how to maintain it and use these things and train the Ukrainian soldiers. Yeah, well, that's that's the explanation given that it's just the 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 M1 Abrams is it, it runs on jet fuel. So not diesel um, that it requires, you know, uh, a major supply line to be able to operate. And, you know, which was not possible in the Ukrainian battlefield. And yeah, like requires heavy maintenance that for every hour that it's out there on the battlefield, it requires a lot of time of of maintenance. So it's just not efficient. That's that, that, that's the excuse given by the U S sure. No, but I'm saying like Germany, if they commit their tanks, wouldn't they also then be committing personnel in order to handle that maintenance supply line and training for the German tanks? Well, I think, uh, the 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 point there is that they you know that that Ukrainians would be trained properly on in in the maintenance. I don't, but that's a good point. I mean, maybe maybe it would require German forces to go in. Uh, that's a good point. That, that's what I think is it could be part of the hesitancy, right? Mm-hmm. For for I mean, I mean, there's a myriad of reasons why it's it's bad, you know, bad juju <laughs> for yeah. Germany to be sending tanks over there. Of course, you know what I mean. Of course, you know, Germany and Ukraine don't have any fraught history whatsoever. Right. Oh, boy. Right. <laughs> oh, boy. But, I mean, yeah. and also on the flip side of that, not just Germany wanting to commit actual personnel, in, in, in America pushing Germany to put their tanks in, I get a lot of the feeling, because I get a lot of feeling what we're doing, or at least what the kind of the, the cynical military-industrial complex is doing with this, is that the, the more weapons that we dump into Ukraine, the more that they'll be able to go back later next year and the year after that, you know, to the Pentagon and say, Hey, all our stockpiles are low, man. We're out of this. We're out of that. We're running out of that now. So now you got to give us a bunch of whole more money. 
and we got to replenish all our things. Oh, and while we're at it, let's not buy that old one. Let's buy this new one that Lockheed Martin just came out with, or Raytheon just came out with that costs even more. But we need to restock because we, de- we depleted all of our reserves, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's, a, it's just an easy way for them to kind of sell the next gen weapon system. Because when uh-huh. we go to restock, when you go to restock, why buy the old model when the new iPhone 27 is out? You know what I mean? Does that yep. make sense? It does make sense. So, I mean, so (laughs) wouldn't this also then be a weird way to force Germany to up their military spending? Because if we get them to commit their tanks and then they they later on go, oh, well, now we need tanks, but we gave away all of our tanks. Now we got to buy new tanks, but we got to buy the new better tanks. So now we have to put even more money into our budget, just like how the United States has gotten Japan and other countries to, uh, to uh, Japan doubled their military budget recently, didn't they? I don't know about Japan, but I do know that it's been a long-standing U.S. goal to get NATO countries to pay more. Uh, Trump was really vocal about that. He really wanted everyone to commit at least two percent of their GDP to military spending, and France France just increased their military spending. I know that, and this certainly is one objective of the U.S. in all this is to get everyone to spend more, more money on weapons. And they have Congress firmly behind them on that. I remember recently when Congress voted to approve um, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, they affirmed this measure saying that calling on every NATO member to spend at least 2% of their GDP and every member of the squad and the Congressional Progressive Caucus voted for that. Funny because didn't they, when Trump first said that, didn't they kind of mock him and make fun of him? And then now they're turning around voting for the very thing. I believe when Trump first floated, you know, saying, ah, NATO's not paying, their, the NATO countries aren't paying their fair share. They need to pay up. If I remember correctly, I think he's pretty roundly mocked by most of the liberal media. He certainly was. He certainly was. And now, uh, and now you're saying they voted for it? They they all voted for it. Absolutely. Jesus they're, fucking yeah. Christ. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Yep. I mean, so is there is there is there any hope to 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 find any solution here, or are we just under the thumb of the military contractors? Because I kind of feel like that that's really we're like we talk about the politics and and the the, the politics of diplomacy, but I, I just don't feel like any of this. It's like not the, we're like in different parallel worlds. We're in our own little world here, and the yeah. reality is is their world where they control everything. Do we even have a shot, or are we fucked? Well, uh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um... <laughs> You'd like to think that somebody in Washington has some sense and says at a certain point, all right, we've sacrificed enough Ukrainians. We've bled Russia enough. It's time to pack it in. But I can't, you know, someone like General Milley, uh, who's the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, that seems to be his position. He was, he's been saying for a few months now that Ukraine's gone as far as it can go militarily. It's time for negotiations. So that's somebody with some influence. He's the top military officer in the country. But it shows how, you know, again, the guiding motives are not security for Ukraine or security for the world. It's just to bleed Russia. It's this, you know, Cold War attitude where that's the top imperative is to bleed this rival, uh, undermine Russia in any way, undermine its power, weaken Russia. And um, that's the guiding motive so far. And anything can happen. And unfortunately, it just means in the in the process, more Ukrainians die. It's. Uh, and, uh, and, and more Ukrainians, um, even more Ukrainians could die if the U S escalates. For example, there was an article this week in the New York times saying that the U S is now 
coming around to giving Ukraine the weapons it needs to hit Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. And if that happens, then of course Russia will retaliate even stronger, just as it did when Ukraine hit the Kerch Bridge in Crimea a few months ago and Russia came back and targeted Ukraine's electrical grid. So whoever's behind these ideas is just asking for more Ukrainians to die. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah, and what's his name recently? Was it Met- Meta or whatever? So the Russian, Russian dude that said that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll use fucking nukes. He had to reiterate that again the other day. We really fill our backs up against the wall. So I feel like that's just, we're going to march right up to that line and it's kind of like a fucking dice roll on whether or not we cross it. I, I, I don't really see a lot of hope, but it is it is hopeful that some people like General Milley are in there at least trying to throw some sense into this. Yeah, I, I think that is... I mean, if you're looking for a sign of hope, that's that's at least some. That's at least one person, <laughs> one person, calling for negotiations. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay, Sam. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Hey there. How's it going? Well, uh, according to the Reuters um, video, I saw that the reason the um, they want the German tanks is the Abrams are just not as great in maneuverability okay. as the German ones were. And there's apparently a back and forth because the Germans are hesitant at first. And then I'll put the Reuters link in there. It was a short three-minute video. But they said uh, it's kind of like they're doing a tip for tat because at the last, like, meeting, uh, Lloyd Austin was saying, oh, Germany should be committing these tanks. And then Germany was saying, oh, yeah, we have no problem committing these tanks. We're just waiting for the go-ahead from the U.S. And the U.S. is then saying, well, we're just waiting for the go-ahead with Germany. So they're both, like – Tossing the ball in each other's court because neither of them wants to like out, uh, you know, outrightly say we don't want the Germans giving the tanks, and Germans are just like we really don't want to give the tanks. But um, I just thought it would be hilarious if this does happen. <laughs> Think of uh, all those U.S. Tau missiles that the the Russians seized in Syria. If that gets used uh, on these tanks in in Ukraine, that would be pretty um... ironic. Yes, it it, it 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 would it would it would. It, would, I, it would be comical irony. Yeah, I mean, so, I, all those all those tow missiles made a difference in Syria. That's what Al Qaeda and its allies used to take Idlib. That was you know, um, the, you know, like like the reason Al Qaeda controls Idlib right now is because the U.S. gave uh, the Al Qaeda dominated insurgency tow missiles, and that helped them take Idlib. So. Um, I, you know, who knows? I, uh, I well, doubt. They didn't, uh, they didn't just give it to them. They gave it to them with the premise to, to knock out the Syrian tank divisions. And then these guys yeah. just were like, yeah, we can use it for anything. They can target outposts because this thing has a, it has a great locking mechanism. Mm-hmm. They use it for vehicles. I mean, it's, they even knocked out like an Russian air, uh, uh craft, I think a couple years back. Right. Uh, using it. So. That'd be hilarious. The downside is, though, you, you kind of need to resupply those things with the specific um, munition, right. you know, so it wouldn't be as easy. But I, I just kind of think Germany's just not going to do it. They're, they're, they really don't want to escalate with Russia because they still need the, the gas line from Russia. And I don't like it. You know, somebody says, oh, well, they they're not really known for giving. And I'm like, well, they they do a a buy around, you know, like they have German. They have the armaments in in Yemen and the way they get around their own um, uh, rules about not giving out weapons is they'll. I think it was like they give it to like Italy and then Italy will send the weapons overseas. It's just the middleman they'll use. But I don't see the Germans really giving the tanks. I don't think they want to escalate it uh, any further. Yeah, I the Germans are tough to read. Um 
they've been bullied before, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they get bullied again. But yes, it does seem that at least right now they're holding out because um, I think maybe maybe this is maybe they've gone far enough as far as they can go. We'll see. It's an interesting time. Well, uh, luckily they did it. They just put it as telling the U.S. Well, if you want us to do it, you got to put your Abram tanks, and then the yeah. U.S. is like, "Yeah, we'll do it if you put your tanks." So it's it's a yeah. bluffing game they're doing back and forth. So I, I don't think anything's going to come out of it. Um, but you know, we'll see. If we never know. The Warhawks have their own game. So anyway, uh, can't wait for uh, another um, AM live session, man. Take care. Thank you. Okay, Matt. Hi there. Hey there, Aaron. How you doing? How's it going? Good. All right. So, yeah, man, my opinion here pretty much on the tank situation is I believe Germany is uh, taking the uh, Turkey route there and becoming openly defiant there to the uh, U.S. uh, measures as far as uh, what to take and how to do it and just, you know, being their little uh, dog on a leash there as far as uh, sending leopard tanks to Ukraine, kind of the same way, uh, you know, Turkey right now, you know, they were all in on the Syria proxy war there at the beginning. Um, really didn't pan out the way they wanted. There was mm-hmm. attempted coup on um, Erdogan, I believe. Uh, Erdogan, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Erdogan. And uh, now he's, you know, defiant, not trying to let Sweden or Finland into the um, NATO. You know, he's still buying Russian oil, things of that nature there. So I feel um, like Germany's kind of taking that approach here now. They kind of see the writing on the wall that, hey, all right, Russia was a lot more prepared than we thought. Sanctions isn't working. You know, they're sanction oil through uh back way uh back um alley measures <laughs> you yeah. know um and then also just kind of like you said like you know they don't want to be they know also sort of the same thing with turkey you know like uh syria is right there on turkey's border so now they're that's coming back home to bite them to blow yep. back um yep. same with the european countries you know this is right there at their back door so this is coming back to bite them a lot harder than it is the u.s so i believe they're looking at that situation and, um, you know, kind of calculating their moves there from, you know, uh, previous events. And I believe that's also playing a, a part in uh, their kind of open defiance now, you know. And, and ultimately, I believe this is going to play in Putin's hands here. And not even play in his uh, hands there, but, you know, it's just the way the cookie crumbles at this point. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree with all that. I agree with all that. It's, but, all just, it's also so cynical, like, for what, you know? For what? Like, what's the point in all this? Um, to, 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 because it's because, because we need to risk all this and sacrifice all these people over who gets to rule over Crimea and the Eastern Donbass, where you have a lot of people who want to be a part of Russia anyway. Uh, and because you don't want to sign a bilateral security deal with Russia that rolls back some uh, NATO military hardware from the, the, the states on Russia's borders. It's just like, you know, uh, I think if we survive this, when we look back on it, I just think the dominant question will be like, why? Why did all this blood get spilled just for this? Exactly, exactly. And then also, like I tell everybody all the time, like if we could understand the U.S. willing to go to nuclear war over Cuba and, yeah. them, uh, you know, USSR missiles in their uh, vicinity, then like we have to be understanding of Russia's point of view of not having weapons, you know, that close to their to their territory. So like you say, it's really at the point of where, like, okay, hopefully cooler heads will prevail and people start thinking, you know, but sadly, uh, we're not sure how much of a dog, uh, how much of a, uh, a rabbit dog <laughs> Germany is willing to be here and, you know, just actually stay defined. But I do believe that um, due to the fact that it's affecting the European uh, 
um, countries, uh, you know, you got the influx of uh, refugees, higher gas prices, um, you know, higher food costs, um, mass protests. And I believe it was France I just seen here. Um, you know, so all of that there is, is just coming home to roost. And, you know, Europeans, they know that, you know, uh, their populations aren't as passive as Americans and that, that they won't be able to get along, <laughs> get along, uh, get away along with this. So I believe all of that's starting to come into factor. But yeah, man, hopefully it doesn't get any worse, you know, especially with America talking about they're willing to help, uh, you know, uh, Ukraine attack Crimea, things of that nature. But yeah, America's looking desperate. Um, on not only that, it seems like they're, uh, you know, that unbreakable bond of NATO that they were always screaming about at the beginning there. It's starting <laughs> to act. Yeah, yep, yep. I, I hear all that. Matt, thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay, uh, Nestor. Uh, hey, oh, hey, thank you, Aaron, for taking me again. Uh, so, oh, you've already called, Nestor, if you've already called, I'm sorry, I have to bump you because I, okay, I don't, no, yeah. cool. but, but, but you can get back in line, and uh, yeah, but yeah. I want to take people who haven't called in yet. Yeah, That's yeah. a rule I'm trying to impose. Sorry about that. Okay, Sterling, go ahead. Hey, Aaron. Uh, go Bills. I feel like you're a little distracted. Do you have the game going on in the background? I don't. Okay. No. Uh, what's the score? It right now it's seventeen seven Cincinnati. They're play, Cincinnati's playing oh, wow. really well. Yeah, wow. and see, my dad grew up in Buffalo, so for the Bills, and they've never won it. So, uh, but Cincinnati looks really good. So there you I, go. I, I remember. Uh, I remember the, those four consecutive years when the Bills went to the Super Bowl. It was unbelievable. <laughs> four straight years, four losses. It was, it's so, and my dad was like the biggest sports fan. So yeah, and he's or he's passed. So it's um, something uh, I just kind of keep up with. But um, yeah. if they win in my lifetime, who knows? But um, anyway, I heard this really interesting interview this morning by a man in Poland. He's lived there. Um, he's a historian. And he was talking about how really um, frustrated Poland is, as you can totally imagine. I mean, it's kind of easy for us. You know, <laughs> Here we are way over here. Um, he said they have um, over a million Ukrainian refugees there. Um, some of them are moving right through. Some of them are staying. And he said that he felt like, well, no, this was fact, that uh, Poland looks at Ukrainians like the British look at the Irish, which I could be offended. I'm Irish, but um, that they really are not happy about it at all. And as far as the tanks, I don't know what they will, what they're planning on doing with that. As far as, I guess, apparently they're all over Europe. I thought it was great of Germany to say, um, yeah, why don't you just send yours? Um, I thought that was kind of bold of them. I think they're in a, um, we talked about this earlier um, when this all started, Germany's in a weird position too, I think between Russia and I thought it was really weird what Lavrov said as far as, you know, the West using Russia as, you know, Hitler, as Germany's final solution or something. I thought, oh my gosh, because these people are chess players. None of this stuff is said lightly. And he got in trouble in March for saying something completely ridiculous that Putin apologized for. But these people, I mean, they are chess players and they know exactly what they're doing. And I thought, is he trying, and this is what I wanted to ask you, is he trying to get Germany upset by that? Or, you know, I just couldn't, or was he trying to pull Israel into it? Or just, it was so bizarre. I just thought, because I watched his three-hour speech and uh, he's actually really intelligent. He makes really great points about what's happening, but that just seemed really strange. Did you hear about that? Have you? I didn't, no. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't, unfortunately, but that's that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, they're demanding an apology now. Um, one of the, you know, Jewish 
um, organizations is like, you've got to be kidding. You can't say this sort of stuff. And, um, but it just all depends on how you look at things. And obviously you can't say something that ridiculous, but, um, yeah. you just never know what, what's going on and who they're playing here. So I thought that was really crazy. And, um, yeah, so we'll just see, I'm just, it's just ridiculous. And I just still think we're the world's bullies and it's really safe over here in America, but you've got all of Europe, all of these people just dying and we don't seem to care. It's just like send more, you know, weapons of death and let's just kill these people so we can have Russia. It's just, it's just sick. I'll never understand it, but I'm glad I can vent. That's what we're here for. I know. Uh, Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Sterling. Bye. Bruce, go ahead. Hey, how's it going, Aaron? Um, I just want to thank you because finding like good, honest coverage of things like this is so hard to find. And like, so I always appreciate your, uh, you know, coverage of, of what's going on. I know that I can trust it. And, um, and that's really hard to find. I can't, I can't understate that mm. enough. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first is, um, I don't know if you've heard of Patrick Lancaster. Uh, I was curious what you would think of or make of his videos. Like, to me, they're kind of jarring because they're like the exact opposite of the narrative that's on the news all the time. But he also has like a what I can only describe as like a South Park-esque quality to him that keeps me from 100% taking him seriously. But I, I was wondering what you make of his stuff or if you've even seen it. You know, I haven't seen his stuff except maybe at a glance, like I know he's based in the Donbass, right? He's an American guy yeah. based in the Donbass. So look, I, you know, I, um, yeah, I haven't seen too much of it, but what I know is, um, look, he's there on the ground and no matter what his perspective is or his bias is, whatever it is, it's sure. valuable. He's there and trying to provide coverage of an issue that, that's been totally ignored for the last, for many years, which is the, the plight of, of Ukrainians on the other side of the war, the war, um, in the Donbass and the people who've been shelled by the Ukrainian government for the last eight years, I think, as I understand him, he's tried to give some coverage as to their plight and tried to present their point of view. And I think um, there's value to that. Definitely. Yeah. He's been covering them for a while. So, so that gives him credibility, I think. But um, yeah. And then the other thing was, since we seem to be like repeating our history and not learning from it, like um, how we funded Al Qaeda and like that came back to haunt us. Um, do you yeah. ever foresee like a day in the future where like Ukrainians will attack the U.S. possibly like out of frustration or whatever? Like, well, you know, I can't predict that. But what I can say is we've already seen blowback. Uh, there have been, you know, uh, weapons seized from people with ties to Azov and other far right right. groups. And, you know, before the invasion, before Russia's invasion, there was a, a case where, uh, you know, people who had, uh, you know, far right extremists in the U.S. who had trained with the Azov Battalion were accused of plotting some kind of violent attack. And so if I were to predict, I think that's, that sort of situation is, is very likely. I mean, it makes sense. Like when you had this hub for global far-right movements to come and train and fight, inevitably, yeah. we'll, we'll, like when they go back home, they're going to bring that experience with them. Yeah, <laughs> we seem to have that. Yeah, we, I mean, we seem to have that. Our, our, our uh, enemies' enemies, our friend policy is not. The best policy when it comes the, to uh, the the gunman who killed all those worshippers at a mosque in uh, in Christchurch, I think that's what it was called, in uh, New Zealand a few years ago. Oh he yeah, claimed, yeah, he claimed to have trained with Azov in Ukraine. Oh wow, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. And he Didn't showed, he write like a whole manifesto too. And, yeah, and he had their insignia. So you know, it's oh wow, you know, 
Yeah, um, that's scary then. That's it's a, certainly, that's a, it's certainly a legitimate fear. It's certainly a legitimate fear. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have trouble taking Zelensky seriously because when he speaks English, he sounds like Triumph the Intel comic dog from the old Conan show. But like, I woke up one day with this fear in my head and I, I was wondering what I, I wanted to get your perspective on it. So thanks yeah, no, for I, that. I think it's definitely something to be concerned about. Absolutely. And look, this is why a few years ago, Congress banned assistance right. to the Azov Battalion. And so someone like Jamie Raskin is now claiming that like, arming Ukraine means that we're standing up for LGBTQ rights. L- literally, he tried to argue that because yeah. he says Russia is a you know, center of global fascism and, yeah. uh, and Christian, um, whatever it is like fundamentalism. And, and so he signed on to, uh, um, you know, letter call and, and measures calling on the U S to ban assistance to the Azov battalion because they're a fascist organization, neo-Nazi organization. Right. right. And now, you know, all that gets erased. Yeah, how quickly people forget. Yeah. Well, th- thanks, man. Keep up the good work. You killed it on the Jimmy Dore show. Oh, thank also. you. I enjoyed Appreciate that. It. Yeah, man. Good thank work. You. Thanks, man. All right. Gator. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Hi there. I'm well. Good. Um, Ronnie is, was running a room as well about uh, kind of the forever war kind of aspects of this. And um, it was, I was kind of thinking about this. And to, to go to this sort of tank's the, the 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 sort of tank thing obviously you know most sensible commentators recognize that if you can't ship in enough meaningful equipment uh to be used by capable manpower then everything you're doing is irrelevant anyway so i'd argue that trying to apply too much meaning to germany's hand-wringing about whether they send 50 leopard 2 tanks which apparently have performance issues anyway is kind of neither here nor there and in terms of the prosecution of war i would generally move into the mentality where although i would say i'd be the first to say i don't support the war i want it to end it should have ended through negotiation the position i find myself more in now is that if russia really is militarily dominant then the the the, th- the only thing that will will limit the number of deaths and bring about the fastest end of this war is Russia continuing to do what it's done, which is to fully embrace all out combined arms conventional warfare and destroying everything it needs to in order to bring about an end of war on its terms. The faster and harder it does that is really the only thing in real terms now that will bring about the end of the war. And so in a way, it's it, you, everybody is just along for that ride. And it's a question of whether Russia can pull it off. And, 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 and on that, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's content, that is contingent upon whether Russia has now fully taken stock in real terms of what it really has to do and has the commitment to do that. And, you know, people would argue that it has. It's finally come to terms with, we've been fucked over by the West. There are a bunch of lying bastards. We can never enter another contract with them again. So we have to annihilate everything so that everyone knows that they don't fuck with us ever again. And I think that as long as they embrace that, truly embrace that, that's the only way that this war ends as quick as it could. Yeah. Well, I think that probably is Russia's takeaway now. And it's a sad one because it didn't have to be this way. Um, I think uh, Russia before the war 
put out proposals that were serious and should have been negotiated. You know, they had two main demands. Um, one was a new bilateral, which means like both sides agree. So Russia mm. agrees and NATO agrees. A new bilateral security agreement that respects Russia's security concerns on NATO expansion and just rolling back, not eliminating, but rolling back the NATO military infrastructure on Russia's borders. Mm-hmm. And the other main demand was that Ukraine uh, declare neutrality, so not to join NATO, and implement the Minsk Accord, so bring the war in the Donbass to an end. And, and on all those fronts, the U.S. and its Ukrainian ally um, refused. Um, Zelensky wouldn't even speak to the Russian-backed Ukrainian rebels in the weeks before the war, and also massively escalated shelling of, of those regions. And... Um, and then since the war began, you've had, you know, there were peace talks between Ukraine and Russia. And by all accounts, it was the West that sabotaged that with Boris Johnson going over to visit Zelensky and telling him, sorry, we're not going to back you up if you make a deal with Russia. So there are ways to avoid this. And sadly, I do think it looks to me as if Russia has drawn the lessons that you're articulating here. And it's just uh, it's sad because uh, it, it, it means a lot more death and suffering for especially for Ukraine. In, in in the longer term, I would argue, though, that I know that this sounds kind of like perverse and slightly cynical, but it, we could find that we look back on this time and kind of you could equate it to being a little bit like that, that thing when the, the weak kid at school is bullied and, and over a period of time, he ends up trying to deal with it in a couple of different ways. You know, he tries to he tries to win the bullies over, he tries to be the funny guy, and he still gets picked on. And eventually, he went off to jujitsu classes and turned out to be a hard motherfucker. And then basically, one day, he couldn't take it anymore, and he beat the shit out of them all. And then they never went near him again. Now, in the long run, what does that do? Well, okay, it puts the bullies in their place, and it sets up that kid for a different kind of life. And hopefully, you have to hope he doesn't become the bully in the future. Now, if, if that means that really... The rebalancing of power um, stems from this, where ultimately the U.S. really does get this undeniable slap in the face and is forced to concede and deal with the real diminishment of its uh, past empire. And therefore the U.N., the nature of power expressed through the U.N., begins to change. And, 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 And lackey countries in that structure actually grow some spine, start to do slightly more of the right politics for their citizens, then that may be a medium to long-term positive outcome from a lot of brutal and avoidable violence. And and that's all I kind of hope for these days now. Okay. Well, I can't think that far ahead, but I appreciate you sharing uh, how you see it. And uh, thank you for the call. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Okay, Nestor, welcome back. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so what, what what we're looking at right now is the desperation of of the U.S., the NATO, and and we know you know a lot of people like on the call to everyone you know we're all wondering why why was this necessary and all that. Well, I mean, look look at what happened as soon as the Soviet Union dissolved. You had Yugoslavia, United States went crazy. You had you you had them you know uh, doing. Uh, uh, military operations in Africa, like Black Hawk Down, they even have a movie. So you you have United States could never coexist with anyone, especially anyone that was a hope, because this is what Russia has always presented 
has always kind of been to the word. It's always been a hope as a counterbalance to, to the United States. And, and now with the rise of China is another hope uh, for, for the world to have a world that is multipolar and that's free from just being terrorized by one country and one country alone. So the United States cannot have this. They, they, they're desperate. If you told me, you know, if or somebody told you, Aaron, that, you know, a year ago that Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia will be trading uh, won for oil, you you would probably laugh, right? No, no one. We are seeing. That's true. No, I, I. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I could not. I for one could, would not have predicted that Saudi Arabia would be defying the U.S. on anything, um, especially the price of oil. When you know when it when Biden wanted uh, OPEC to keep oil at a certain price, and Saudi balked and basically sided with Russia. I was, I could not have predicted that a year ago. Yeah, we're, and that's and that's the consequences that we are seeing from this this conflict. And what the United States set out to do, it's doing it to itself. And, it, and, and we're starting to see it. We're starting to see it. We're, we're starting to see how many people want to join BRICS. We're, we're starting to see with how, how they're already starting to dump the dollar. A lot of countries are just, you know, trying to make uh, new trade deals where they're trying to trade with their own currency and getting rid of the dollar. So the United States know that if, if Ukraine falls, the dollar... It's not going to mean much, and 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 and, that, and even if it does mean a little bit, it's not going to be enough to support the current empire. It's not going it's, if if they lose value in their in their in their finances right now, they're not going to be able to hold 250 military bases around the world. They're not going to be able to do what they've been doing. This got it. Time. Yeah, yeah, got it. Nestor, thank you for the call. Right. Okay, Brent. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Hi. So uh, I have a couple questions. So um, are you ever going to come back to L.A.? Or... Uh, yeah, yeah, I will come back to L.A. Of course I will. Are you going to host a show, are you gonna host a show or the Jimmy Dore show? Or... I think I will. I think I will. Yes, yes. Another yes. more serious question. So there was a mass shooting here in, in L.A. actually. Ten people are dead. I don't know yeah. if you heard about it. Of course I did, yeah. Okay, so uh, my question to you is, um, this person obviously committed a crime of, of killing people, mm-hmm. and my question is, let's say that guy felt that Asian people in particular were, um, well, like the previous caller said, were bullying him. Uh-huh. Does that... It never justifies violence, right? I don't think. There, there must be other ways to solve... There's, 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 there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, there's never any justification for a mass shooting or any kind of violence. And if you're trying to apply that to the the war in Ukraine, it's not a good analogy. But, um, again, yeah, yeah, but, but, um, you know, as I've said, um, I cannot justify. Russia's invasion, because I can't accept that it had no other choice but to invade. Um, but I, I'm also not going to pretend that Russia wasn't provoked and that Russia didn't also put offers on the table that were serious and that if addressed, I think, could have avoided the war. So I, I think Russia did try diplomacy. I just don't know if Russia did everything it could to avoid war, which I think a moral person should do. Now, listen, by the st- I should also say this. By the standards of states, for example, the standards set by the U.S., 
Russia acted with a lot more um, uh, thought and I think um, effort to achieve, to resolve this diplomatically. If you look at what the U.S. did in Iraq and Libya, they just wanted to go to war and no, nothing could stop that. I mean, uh, Iraq, Libya, very clear examples where the U.S. just poisoned all options for diplomacy. Russia tried diplomacy. So by the standards of the world, I think Russia performed better than the U.S. did if we're going by the rules-based international order. But as a more, you know, but that doesn't mean that it's morally justified because, you know, that's, I just think to, 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 to justify war, you have to show you exhausted all other means and you had no other choice. I don't think Russia has proved that case, um, as, as I've said many times and as we've talked about. So, um, yeah. And one more thing. What's your position on gun control? This is a very controversial topic. I'm very pro, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very, very pro gun control. I, uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm very pro uh, gun control. I, I uh, you know, I, uh, I understand that, um, I, I'm not from here, right? I'm, I'm from Canada where we don't have a constitutional right to firearms. And so, you know, I, I respect that that's the law here and that people feel very strongly about that. And I do think, you know, uh, within that context, you have to respect people's right to own guns because that is the law, um, until it's changed. But, um, there has to be, I don't see a constitutional right to having assault rifles. You know, that wasn't in the constitution. So that's where I would hope that even, you know, gun advocates could be willing to compromise at least because something has to be done. Cause this is not, this is not a healthy system, obviously. Right. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for, um, hosting this Colin. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Andrew, go ahead. Hello, sir. Uh, I wanted the second that you've done a great job on the Jimmy Dore show, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on there again. It's absolutely great. Um, Other than that, I wanted to make you aware of or ask you if you're aware that Agents France Press has reported that a U.S. official uh, has told them that uh, the U.S. has advised Ukraine to pull out of Bakhmut. I did see that. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, that was a few days ago, right? Yeah, about two days ago. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was interesting just because it's basically invisible in the Western press, which you would think it would be significant if we had a functioning press. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think I think the, the, the problem for the media is they've had a hard time alternating between claiming that Ukraine isn't losing in Bakhmut and then saying that, oh, it doesn't matter if they are losing. I, I well, yeah. Kind of, yeah. And how insulting is that to all the people that have died there, that the second that they lose, it's going to be an insignificant, yeah. uh, strategically unimportant, no yeah. tactical use to the Russians. And that's why we sacrifice. Well, you know, they won't even say how many people have died in the war. So, no, it's, it, the, you know, I, I just thought that was worth bringing up. And I'm glad you've heard that already. But, uh, yeah, it's getting brutal over there with these people being abducted off the streets now as well. That's the other thing I'd like to point out, that it's now getting to the point where there are videos coming out of conscription that is forced to the point of people just being grabbed and, uh, like a pig and stuffed into a van against their mm-hmm. will to go, you know. And uh, what these people... Well, to be fair, though, do, I mean... But to be fair, we've heard that about Russia too, right? Where people have been forced sure. to go off and fight, right? Right. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. But uh, you know, it's it's just getting worse to this point. I, I would say uh, these videos weren't as common before. I've right. been paying yeah. attention, and you know, a little bit at the start, but not so much. There were a lot of volunteers, and uh, 
apparently now that's not the case. So yep. uh, thanks for your time, Aaron. I won't take up any more. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay, Aziz. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you fine. Uh, right. Uh, so to begin with, uh, thanks for the meeting. So to begin with, I, I had a quick with regard to uh, uh, something that was mentioned, you know, the comparison between ISIS and these and, the, and other groups that were armed by the United States in the Syria Dirty War. Mm-hmm. But with regard to that specifically, you mean, I mean, you can't really make the comparison with Ukraine in the sense that Ukraine had a fully functional army prior to the war, uh, heavily armed our, uh, army. They had tanks, they had all that kind of stuff, which, I mean, the, the, the point being, I, I highly doubt that two twenty tanks, 20 19 tanks will make a difference. I mean, you're not going to provide Ukraine with something that it didn't already have prior to the to the war. I mean, they it, it, it already had that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's that comment. But then I had another comment, and I understand that you're Canadian. You just pointed that out. But, I mean, it was more about uh, my, my question, really, was more about uh, the mentality with people in the United States. So, see, I'm, I'm always quite baffled by uh, how Americans are, uh, are acting t- towards what's happening abroad, Perhaps they're not acting harsh enough towards the leadership because they're not informed well enough. But I don't understand quite how can how they cannot relate what's happening abroad to problems that's coming back at, at home. I mean, take for I know this is a sensitive topic, but take for instance school shootings in the United States. I understand they're quite they become they're becoming more common now. But I'm just reminded of one comment made by Mark Kimmett. He was the chief military spokesman in Iraq from 2003 to 2004. I remember at one time during one of the raids, it was quite common for American helicopters to fly quite low to avoid being hit by Iraqis. And I think one Iraqi journalist asked him, what do you say to Iraqi children who, who, who are terrified by the sounds of the helicopters? And I think he said something along the lines, I would tell them they're listening to the sounds of freedom. To begin with, what kind of piece of shit do you have to be to say something like that? But then, you know, can't Americans relate, you know, when someone says that and then you have in the United States when mass, when school shootings are happening and then you have people defending guns, the same people that, w- that would usually promote the war in Iraq or elsewhere. Can't you see that really it's the same thing? They both pretend yeah. gun laws are... Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the main reason why most Americans or many Americans can is because they live under a propaganda system that's designed to prevent them from making that connection between the, the culture of violence abroad and the culture of violence at home. Whereas abroad, it's just presented as we're, we're spreading freedom, right? As that a helicopter pilot said. Um, and that's what most people are told in their media every single day and they're denied dissenting voices. And so it's hard to make that connection that way. But um, yeah, I, I do think that when you have a culture of violence overseas, that's definitely going to bleed back at home. And um, I agree with you that, that there is a connection. You know, on your point about, you know, rejecting a comparison between Syria and Ukraine, you know, I do think there's a comparison to be made because in both cases, for the U.S. to achieve its goals, it had to rely on extremist elements so, and, and arm them. And so in Ukraine, um, the dominant forces that took power in 2014 and that have played a huge role in influencing Ukrainian politics in 2014 are the far right. And... That's why after the coup in 2014, uh, when a civil war broke out, 
a lot of normal Ukrainian soldiers defected over to the pro-rebel side because they didn't want to kill their own family members uh, and, 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 you know, and, and their own people. And so the Ukrainian government had to rely on these new battalions like Tornado and Azov that were formed to basically fight against the Donbass rebels because they didn't have sufficient military forces to do it. So I think the point is simply that to achieve its goals, the U.S. often has to turn to these far-right extremist forces, whether it's in Syria or it's in Ukraine. I agree. I meant in the sense that, you know, you were arming the rebels with, with some things, I mean, the rebels in Syria, you were arming them with something that they didn't, that they didn't have. So it's, it's, it's a, like, right. weapon. Right. Didn't have. Ukraine doesn't have, but Ukraine, you know, look, uh, Ukraine doesn't have, obviously, the tanks it feels it needs uh, beca- because it's begging for them. You know, like uh, Z- um, General Zaluzhny, the, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, he said he needs something like 300 tanks to be able to fight Russia, which is a lot and which he's not going to get. So, yeah, it was quite, yeah, it was quite a ridiculous number. I think he made he, the number he, he wished for was something more than the entire European states have combined. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Lastly, I had one question. Thanks for your time again. Uh, I, 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 I have read quite quite a lot of lit, lit, literature about this, but, but but I still but I'm just asking for the current situation. How is the view of the, in the United States right now of of Israel, uh, considering its new right wing uh, right wing uh, government? That's clearly not. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like previous Israeli governments where they would be liberal, but still, I mean, I mean, it's liberal apartheid, if you could say that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, in the in the U.S. public, I think you've seen support decline, especially in the Democratic Party. Uh, it's been easier to criticize Israel, but in Congress, it's still pretty much uniform. You have a few people who are dissenting, but overall, uh, in terms of political support, where it matters in Congress, it's 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 pretty steady. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think Israel has killed something, uh, uh, something, a number of, of about like 19 people thus far this year. I mean, is there any hope of change in the United States? In the US? Well, there should be. There, there should be. It's been done before. I mean, popular movements have changed things a little bit. And if it happened, you know, if there was a popular uh, organization effort, um, organizing effort to mobilize around Palestine, I, I think it could be possible. But it's a question of will. It's just it's hard to it's hard to mobilize in the u.s it's hard to get people to focus on one issue and to get people to care and uh it's a question of whether people are motivated to do it you know there's so many causes and everyone's sort of spread spread thin and that it, it's hard but i certainly think it's possible uh thank you for the call Aziz. thank you hans hey aaron hi there greetings from germany so since i'm german and uh, living in germany I thought maybe I can contribute something to your show. Yeah, please. Um, you know, I want to talk about the vibe here in Germany, the situation. Uh, and I have to say, <laughs> I'm really concerned what's happening in my country because I've never experienced something in my whole life. And I'm now almost uh, 40 years old. Um, there is relentless propaganda on uh, German media, day in, day out, uh, relentless war propaganda, uh, warmongering every day, whether it's on public TV, whether it's on private uh, television channels, whether it's in the newspapers. Uh, It's every day that we need to uh, support Ukraine and we need to uh, 
increased support and uh, nobody should have any, you know, um, uh, restraint. There shouldn't be restraint. That is now, that now became the, yeah, consensus of the media elite. Uh, and it's crazy because this is not the Germany <laughs> that I lived, uh, that I lived in for the uh, past uh, 30 years. And, you know, I'm not a pacifist. I don't think that, uh, well, everybody should just uh, bow, bow down when, when somebody rolls in tanks in your country, but um, you have to use reason and uh, you have to analyze the situation and look at what, what makes it worse or where can we uh, make it better. Mm. And it's not happening at all. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's totally crazy. And, you know, Aaron, maybe it's the same thing in the U.S., but what I recognize is that it's the same people and i mean really the exact same people not just you know the class of people but the exact same people in almost all cases that are now uh you know uh, uh pushing this war and pushing uh, and escalating this war um because of freedom and democracy that we are now obliged to defend in Ukraine, which, of course, there is no freedom and democracy yep. in Ukraine. It's a dictatorship. Who who said in the in the uh, in the past uh, years when uh, while co uh, the COVID crisis uh, happened that you know freedom isn't that important. If we can save just one life, then you have to. Uh, we can suspend your rights and your freedom. So. Uh, saving life is the most important thing. And now they say lives don't matter. You know, we do, uh, we do not have to, uh, uh, we cannot make uh, peace with Russia because freedom is more important. But this is crazy. It's totally crazy. And it's totally escalating. And I don't know what to say. It's, it's, yeah. it's very worries me. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting to watch the reaction in the U.S. to Germany's uh reluctance to send tanks. So there's an editorial yeah. in the Washington Post this week saying that, you know, Germany's refusing to send tanks. Biden can't let this happen. And what the <laughs> yeah. editorial says is that basically that like, you know, it doesn't matter what, what, like what the German people think, you know, basically they have to follow our orders. They have to send tanks if we tell them to. And so that's how much the U.S. cares about freedom and democracy is that if another country, democratic country doesn't go along, then they have to follow yeah. orders. That's what matters here. Yeah, Aaron, but uh, I, I don't know, uh, because <laughs> it's basically the same, the same mindsets that our politicians have when it comes to the German populace, because they don't care about the people's opinion either. I mean, okay, I'm, I'm living in East Germany, so we are even more skeptical, but Germans overall are not very uh, in support of escalating this war. You know, they want... They want the truce or something rather sooner than later. Uh, and maybe if, uh, if the status quo ante, which was that Crimea was under control of Russia, uh, would be the outcome, you know, that Russia keeps Crimea or whatever, and you have a, or you have another United Nations referendum there or something like that. People would like this in Germany. But, uh, of course, uh, then the media class says uh, that is impossible. Ukraine must 
uh, win this war. This is now the, this is the opinion of the media class and it's totally against uh, the people's opinion. Yeah, and of course, quietly, they actually admit, at least here in the U.S., they admit that Ukraine can't win the war. I mean, that's basically like the position of General Mark Milley. But that yeah, contradiction yeah, yeah. gets ignored. They, they simultaneously say that we have to help Ukraine win, but they also say Ukraine can't win. So then why are we continuing the war? Well, they, well the war is not to defend Ukraine. It's to weaken Russia. And everyone else, has, everyone else for most Ukrainians, but also Germans and G- German economy and uh, Germans' well-being, Germany's well-being have to be sacrificed because they're all subordinate to the aims of, of the people in Washington. That's what it comes down to. It's, um, and it's amazing how many European leaders have been bullied into go- and bribed, I imagine, into going along. Hans, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Yep. It's great to hear from somebody in Germany. Thank you. Uh, Mark. Hi. Now, Mark, have you already called in today? Uh, no, I haven't. You have, okay, go ahead. Yep. Um... Yeah, I'm calling in uh, just to to um, point out that that previous U.S. Uh, proxies in this area, like Georgia and Hungary, are almost on on Russia's side. That they're certainly not getting involved at all. And I just thought that was that was quite interesting. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, and and just as an, an aside, it's not really. I, I mean, I've got uh, Ukrainian and and also Crimean Russian heritage. My my grandparents um, met during the Second World War, and I, I was just curious about that. And um, in in my life as a computer technician, I. I actually supported this this really old guy um, from Hungary who was, uh, you know, he, he was so young he wouldn't have been very involved, but, but you know, th- they brought young people into the, the war towards the end. Uh, and, yeah, he'd, he'd been indoctrinated as a Nazi. He, he, you know, he disavowed all of that, although, you know, he was saying... Um, uh, yeah, I I like you. So you're you're not Russian. <laughs> you, you're definitely you you Ukrainian, and and w- was talking about that. And my grandparents were w- were you know I- imprisoned by by the Nazis, and they actually you know that they, they were forced into collaboration. And and then when they could escape, they they um you know. Did other other things, but then when they had the opportunity that they didn't want to go to America or Canada, or you know, um, or back to Russia or, or or Ukraine, they wanted to come to Australia because they'd never heard of the place before, and you know they'd be- betrayed all, all sides. So so that was interesting. I, I wanted to point out where Hungary and and Georgia were, uh, and. Yeah, that there was a point I was going to make about about the the history there. You know, he he ended up going back to to Hungary, and I'm sure there would have been a bit of a political fight there. You know, I'm I'm wondering whether there was there was some work by the U.S. to try and 
switch things in in Hungary and 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 all, all kinds of places. I mean, obviously, it happened in in Ukraine, um, and yeah, and and it's just funny that it didn't work in Hungary, didn't work in Georgia, and and these places. Yeah, well, they certainly know, tried in Georgia. They certainly tried yeah, in Georgia, yeah. where basically, you know, uh, well, well, like Dick, in, in Hungary, Dick Cheney, uh, Dick Cheney uh, basically provoked a war back in 2008 when he encouraged Shakespeare to go into South Ossetia and suggested the U.S. would have his back. And then he did. And then Russia responded and the U.S. didn't have his back and, and Georgia lost. So uh, they tried yeah. there. Um, and yeah. Hungary. Yeah. What I was Hungary, talking about uh, in Hungary was the, the revolution. You know, the, the reason this guy hated uh, uh, Russians was because he was involved in the, the Hungarian revolution. And, you know, he said they were promised support from the US, which never eventuated. So, right. that, well, that was that's, you know, that's a, that's a case where there are people who think that US played a very big role in, in fomenting the Hungarian revolution in 1956. Um, I have a personal connection to that because my father's Hungarian and his side of the family fled uh, in 1956 because they were facing persecution as Jews and, and they were fleeing the Soviets. It was the Soviets who they feared back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he, de- you know, so speaking to my family, to family members, they don't think the U S played a very dominant role there, but other lefty friends of mine do, I uh, think that the U S was I, all behind I've, that. I've so. actually, I've actually got this guy's, uh, his, his memoir actually, Huh. You know, I, 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 I uh, well, he, it was, it's not a completed memoir. So he Maybe. was a Nazi. So he was a, so, so he was a former Nazi yes. and he claimed, and he claims what about 1956? What's his claim there? Uh, he, he was involved in it. Um, he was involved in it. And he, and he was back. And did, did he say he was backed by the U S he, he says that. Yes. He did, I understand. All right. Well, Hey, um, that's really interesting. Um, uh, and a, a, you know, a historian of that period, I think would be very interested in, in that memoir. Um, if you write me, yeah, my, my email is on my Twitter page. Uh, you can, uh, um, if you want to, if you want to pass it along to me, I, I take a look at it when I have the time. Uh, but we're going to move on. So Mark, thank you for the call. And Tom, you'll be our last caller today. Go ahead. And Tom, if you're there, there's a mute button in the bottom left to unmute yourself. Don't, uh, yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I got confused by a little dialogue on my phone. Hi, Matt, Aaron. Uh, so I got a couple of points to make. To respond to um, a couple of previous callers, um, I, so I'm calling from the US. I've lived here 25 years, well, more than that. Um, and I, I can say, look, what do Americans think? Do they, uh, do they think this? Do they think that? Well, it depends which Americans you're talking about. Most Americans do not know what's happening in Ukraine, that Ukraine is losing a war, it's losing huge amounts of territory, that it's using, losing its equipment, it's losing the money that we give them to you know, fund their government, um, and it's losing people. Um, they don't know this. They don't know the scale of the migration that's going on, uh, the kind of suffering that's taking place there. Um, so, and when it comes to what do Americans have to say about this? Well, they're not consulted about it. This is something that happens in Washington and the people, the American people are not consulted on these topics. Uh, both parties 
both political parties, the Democrats and the Republican, Republicans, um, feel that there is unanimous consensus on this. This may be changing a little bit, but um, that's the status. Um, if you want to try and put together a picture of what's happening, uh, it's very, very difficult. I think this is more difficult to put together the, the, the kind of information environment that we're in is more difficult than probably ever before in terms of major wars. Uh, it, it's really extraordinarily difficult to get good information. Um, and you have to piece it together bit by bit and it's very time consuming and difficult. Um, I agree. I agree. I agree. And it's, you know, I, I agree. And I can just say as someone who, you know, has been, who's worked in and been around lefty progressive media my whole life. Um, I look at a lot of colleagues and uh, people who I, I've worked with and a lot of people have gotten duped by the really sophisticated and effective propaganda that we've gotten about this war. And, and they're not either aware of the relevant facts or they don't want to acknowledge them. And it's, so it's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. it like during the Iraq war, uh, there were even some people on MSNBC willing to criticize it, you know, and of course they were taken off of the air. Uh, like Phil Donahue was taken off of the air because he was critical. Jesse Ventura. But at least he, and Jesse Ventura, but at least they existed. Now MSNBC, you know, zero dissent. And you look at, Many of the big lefty media outlets like Democracy Now! and a lot of proxy war propaganda has been filtered through places like that. And it's weird. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's in that situation, it's very hard for people to get accurate information. It's, it, yes, uh, it, it's extremely hard. I, I think that the American people just simply don't know what's going on. So to sort of like blame them is, yeah, maybe a little strong. Um, I, I don't know how to deal with that, but I want to uh, add another point about this this whole Hungary situation. Everybody's been talking about oh, Hungary. What am I talking about? Um, my wife is from Hungary. She's um, she grew up in you know when it was a Warsaw Pact country, and uh, we 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 when we came to the U.S. that was uh, it was a nice, um, contrast, and you know this was during the period when we were in our early thirties. And, you know, her, her cynicism grew over time after we came to the US. Um, and we talked about it just recently. And she said, you know, she's come to the understanding that, you know, the bullshit that the government provides, is, it's the same. You know, the, the, the politics here doesn't work just like it didn't work back in, in Hungary. And, and they lie to us all the time. Um, and I said, but there is a bit of a difference. Back in, in Hungary, at that time, and I think this is probably true in Russia, in the Soviet Union, wherever, uh, there was a difference in that most people knew what the party said was generally bullshit. And there was just not, there was kind of resignation about what to do about it. Um, and depending on where you were and who you were with, how safe it was to talk about it. But they knew it. That was that there's there's an interesting difference here in the US today. People aren't aware that what they're being given every day in terms of news is bullshit. Um, absolutely. It's a really beautiful propaganda system. It's so efficient. Like so in like, you know, a, a communist state, you have one state media outlet and that's the party line. And everyone knows that that's what the party line is. And they know if they think critically that they can. Uh, see through it, right? And see it as just propaganda. Well, in the U.S., you have no really official state channels, but all the private channels, the so-called free channels, are all 
parroting the line of the state and making it even more beautiful. There's so many choices. There's like four major networks and they're all on the key issues. They're all pretty much the same. They only split up sometimes when it comes to a factional dispute among the rulers, like Democrats or Republicans. So it's really, you couldn't, I think, design a more efficient propaganda system than what you have in the U.S. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Tom, thank you for the call. Uh, and we're going to wrap it there. So thank you for everybody for tuning in and spending some time with me. I appreciate it. And I'll be back uh, next week on Sunday, uh, probably around this 